this is Dr. Prathima Seti, and I am your host for this segment on ReachMD. Today we are speaking with Dr. Eve Espy. Dr. Espy is the chairperson of the Department of OBGYN, professor in the Division of Family Planning, and fellowship director for the Family Planning Program at the University of New Mexico. She is also president-elect of the Society of Family Planning and is the medical advisory committee chair for the national campaign to prevent teen and unplanned pregnancy. She has won numerous teaching awards and has also received the prestigious Rashbaum Award for recognition of her impact on training and service in abortion provision. She has numerous publications and has presented nationally on the topics of contraception and abortion. Dr. Espy, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. In the recent, there has been a real focus and attempt to use more long-acting reversible contraceptive methods in clinical practice. Can you comment on why you think this is so? The increase in interest in long-acting reversible contraceptives really goes along with their tremendous effectiveness and their great side effect profile. It's increasingly been recognized that the majority of women are good candidates for both of the long-acting methods, both the intrauterine device, the IUD, as well as the contraceptive implant. In the past, there were concerns about who good candidates were for these methods, and these days, a very large body of evidence points to the safety and effectiveness of these methods. So they really have the opportunity to reduce the very high rate of unintended pregnancy that we see in this country. And have you found that these long-acting reversible contraceptive methods, are they more effective than birth control pills and the patch, NuvaRing, those other types of methods? that we generally have used in the past? Yes. So we consider the long-acting methods to be the IUD and the contraceptive implant, and the short-acting methods are the ones that you talked about, which are the birth control pill, the patch, and the ring, and to some extent, Depo-Provera. Depo-Provera is the shot that you get every three months, and even though that's a longer-acting method, it still requires multiple acts of motivation to continue the method. So what's been found, particularly in a recent research project called the, the Contraceptive Choice Project, is that the long-acting methods, the IUD and implant, are about 20 times more effective in preventing unintended pregnancy than the short-acting methods. So that's why there is such a focus on these methods, because they work so much better. So as far as counseling a patient in the office with the different options of IUD, Mirena versus Paragard, and for that matter, you know, the, the Nexplanon or Implanon, on. How do you approach this? How do you present these options? So it's always very important to present contraceptive options to women in a way that they have the choice of options. So there are a number of different choices, including the short-acting methods as well as the long-acting methods. However, just the way we would present options for other medical conditions, for example, hypertension, we would talk about the most effective methods first. That's the way I approach talking to women about contraceptive methods in terms of the long-acting methods. So again, very important for women to make their own choice, but I do tend to open the conversation about contraceptive options, talking about the IUD and the implant. Now, in terms of those options, the copper IUD is a 10-year option. It's very good for women who desire a non-hormonal method or who want contraception for greater than a year. There is sometimes increased bleeding or cramping with periods with the copper IUD. The hormone IUD lasts for five years. It most often reduces menstrual bleeding. 
And for some women, there's no bleeding at all. That's a great option, again, for women who desire contraception for a longer-term period, more than six months to a year. And again, both of these methods are what we call forgettable, meaning once they're initiated, there's no ongoing maintenance that's needed. In terms of the Nexplanon, that's the contraceptive implant. Again, good for women who desire longer-term contraception for more than six months to a year. There are some bleeding irregular with the Nexplanon that may be well accepted by some women, but not as well accepted by others. So are there any absolute contraindications for the IUD? So absolute contraindications are few and far between. They include an active pelvic infection within the past three months. They include a uterine cavity that is unable to accept an IUD. So if there is an abnormality of the cavity of the uterus, there are some uterine abnormalities that cause the shape of the uterus to be such that an IUD can't be placed. So that's an absolute contraindication. Obviously, pregnancy is an absolute contraindication to the IUD. So do you do an ultrasound prior to insertion for these women to check and see if they have uterine abnormalities or... Do you generally don't do that? We generally don't do that. Uterine abnormalities are pretty unusual. And many uterine abnormalities, for example, we think of the uterus as triangular in shape in terms of the cavity. Uterine abnormalities may be where one side of the uterus is much bigger than the other. Many common uterine abnormalities are such that an IUD can be placed. And still be effective? Is that And it's still effective, yes. Ultrasound prior to IUD placement is rarely needed unless there's an abnormality that's suspected. So what do you quote as the risk of pregnancy with the properly placed IUD versus Nexplanon? I'm assuming very, very low. Both are very low. The pregnancy rate with the IUD, both the copper and the hormone, we quote at about 1% or slightly less, whereas with the Nexplanon, it's actually much less than 1%. So looking at the two methods side by side, Nexplanon is far more effective even than the IUD. But IUDs are so highly effective that we do consider them all in the same group. So what do you quote as the amenorrhea rate after Mirena versus Nexplanon? Are they similar? The Mirena has a higher rate of amenorrhea than Nexplanon, and it's more predictable. About 20% of women after a year have amenorrhea with the Mirena, and that percentage increases over time. Whereas one of the difficulties in counseling women about the Nexplanon is that the bleeding pattern is often unpredictable. So a woman may have a period of amenorrhea, but may then have several months of irregular bleeding. So although amenorrhea does occur with about 20% of women with the implant, it's difficult to predict who those women will be and whether that pattern will sustain over time. So how do you manage those bleeding abnormalities after IUD placement? Oftentimes you hear women who have a lot of bleeding after these IUD placements. What is considered acceptable and how do you manage that? The major complaint with the copper IUD is heavy bleeding with cramping. The main complaint with the hormone IUD is irregular bleeding or no bleeding. So it's very important up front to counsel women that they may have very little or no bleeding with the hormone IUD. With the Nexplanon, it's irregular, unpredictable bleeding. So for example, with the hormone IUD and the copper IUD, 
the rates of discontinuation due to bleeding are similar. It's about 10% in the first year, but the reasons for discontinuation are different. One is too much bleeding, the other is irregular bleeding. Similarly, with the contraceptive implant, irregular bleeding leads to the list of reasons why women stop using the implant. What would be considered acceptable time for the patient as far as their bleeding issues? A few months? And do you give them any medication to help with the bleeding at that time? So for the copper IUD, we often recommend using nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories. Use of ibuprofen, for example, not only reduces cramping with the IUD, but it also reduces the volume of bleeding. So that's a commonly prescribed medication in women who use the copper IUD. For the hormone IUD, we usually counsel that irregular bleeding is most likely time-limited within about three months. We will counsel that the woman may experience irregular bleeding for up to three months. After three months, the most common pattern is either oligomenorrhea or complete amenorrhea. When women come in, let's say a woman comes in at six months still complaining of irregular bleeding with the hormone IUD, I will sometimes, if she is an appropriate candidate, recommend one to three months of oral contraceptives to see if that makes an impact. There's not a huge amount of data for that, but it may help with the bleeding pattern and allow a woman to continue an IUD that she would otherwise discontinue. I do a similar approach with women using the contraceptive implant. If the most common reason that women want the implant removed is because of daily spotting or daily heavier bleeding and sometimes giving a short trial of oral contraceptives on top of the implant will help alleviate the problem. And do you generally use a 20 microgram combination pill or do you go higher than that? What is your general practice? I usually use a 30 or 35 microgram pill, most commonly because it's cheaper. Sprintec, which is a generic of a 35 microgram pill, is available at certain pharmacies for $9 a month, whereas other oral contraceptives are significantly more expensive. But also the 30 or 35 microgram pills tend to do a slightly better job with really alleviating the bleeding irregularity that tends to be frustrating the patient very much at that time. So do you ever do an endometrial biopsy with the IUD in place in those patients who have continued abnormal bleeding, or is that generally not a practice that you do? No. So two situations. One is in a woman with a hormone IUD, irregular bleeding is expected. Also, we know that the hormone IUD has a great reduction in risk of uterine cancer as one of its non-contraceptive benefits. So the likelihood of an endometrial cancer in a young woman using a hormone IUD is extremely low. Now, conversely, in a woman with a copper IUD who develops unscheduled bleeding who's over 35, we will typically do an endometrial biopsy but leave the IUD in place. There's no reason to remove the IUD just to do an endometrial biopsy. So in that situation, does the IUD get in the way of doing the biopsy because it's in the uterine cavity? Yeah, but as it turns out, it does not disrupt the IUD, and the IUD does not interrupt the ability to perform the biopsy. What are some tips that you give providers to avoid perforation of the uterus? That's always something all providers are worried about doing at the time of insertion. What are some guidance that you can give those clinicians? I think the most important tip for preventing perforation is to use the same technique described in the package insert 
for IUD insertion, particularly when a provider is new at performing IUD insertion. So, for example, I'm in a teaching institution, so I'm always teaching somebody to place an IUD. So I follow the package insert directions very closely. So, for example, I always place a tenaculum, I always sound the uterus, and then use the appropriate technique, again, as described in the package insert. Now, for providers who are very experienced with IUD insertion, removing the step of using the tenaculum or of sounding the uterus may be practiced. But I think particularly during that learning curve with difficult IUD insertions, really following the same standardized technique with every IUD insertion can be quite helpful. And what about those patients with a severely retroverted or severely antiverted uterus? Do you ever have difficulty placing the IUDs in those situations, or can you offer any advice on those types of patients? In the setting of a difficult IUD insertion and when by manual exam has demonstrated that the uterus is severely antiverted or retroverted, occasionally ultrasound guidance may be helpful. Most of the time with careful technique, ultrasound guidance is not needed, but I think with any difficult IUD insertion, there are other factors that may help making sure that the patient is comfortable. So, for example, either giving PO narcotics or considering a paracervical block, using other instruments, an OS finder or dilators, having those kinds of instruments on hand for the difficult IUD insertion can be quite helpful. So do you generally remove an IUD and place another one in the same day, or do you have them come back? Absolutely same day. I think we really need to change the way we approach contraception in general, that it's an emergency. So anything that we can do the same day, we should do the same day. We have a same-day insertion protocol for placing IUDs. So if a woman comes in and we can reasonably rule out pregnancy, we will place the IUD on the same day. And as far as ruling out pregnancy, do you check a pregnancy test on all your patients before insertion, or what's your general protocol with that? We do a pregnancy test on all women unless, for example, they have an IUD in place at the time that they come in or another long-acting method. We follow the United States-specific practice recommendations for how to reasonably rule out that a woman is pregnant, so we ask about whether she's had unprotected sex within the last week or two prior to her presentation, as well as doing the pregnancy test. So in the office, I've often heard of patients complaining of mood changes, weight gain, and other progesterone-type effects after Mirena placement. Do you think this is common, and how do you manage that? Hormone-related side effects, we definitely hear those complaints with both the Marina IUD and with the Nexplanon. The amount of hormone released by the hormone IUD is very small, so many of those complaints are unlikely related to the hormone. For example, weight gain, there's studies have not documented weight gain with the hormone IUD. But in general, if patients believe that they have side effects that are caused by hormones, it can be difficult to change their minds or their attitudes about that. So in general, I am guided by what patients want. Oftentimes, reassurance is helpful. For example, weight gain, reassuring patients that studies don't show evidence of weight gain either with the contraceptive implant or with the hormone IUD, that can be helpful. 
talking about diet and exercise, for example. But sometimes people feel very strongly that their side effects are related to hormones, and then another conversation is is necessary. So in those instances, do you sometimes have to take the marina out? Yes. And again, I think that gets back to women should have a free choice of contraceptive methods and initiating and ending them whenever they want. Somebody may come in and say they have a side effect that they're sure is related to the device that I may not think is related to the device, but ultimately the patient is in charge and very important to honor their wishes. Another question for you, Dr. Espy, how do you manage someone who comes in for an IUD check and you look inside the vagina with the speculum and you don't see the IUD string? How would you manage that? The first test to do when there's no IUD string is an ultrasound. We're fortunate in our office, we have both transabdominal and transvaginal ultrasound, and most frequently performing an ultrasound will confirm the presence of the IUD. The copper IUD is much easier to see on ultrasound than the hormone IUD. Occasionally, it's very easy to see the hormone IUD, but sometimes it's more subtle. But most of the time, we can verify the presence with ultrasound. If the ultrasound does not show an IUD in the uterus, then the next step is to do an x-ray of the abdomen. And it's very important in that x-ray to visualize the entire abdomen and pelvis in order to locate a potentially perforated IUD that's wound up in the intra-abdominal location. So in the instance that you need to take the IUD out and you can't see the string, what are some tips that you can give clinicians with that experience? So if the IUD is in the uterus, but there are no visible strings, there are two instruments that are very helpful in removing the IUD. The traditional instrument is called an IUD hook. It's a metal instrument that has a pronounced hook at the end, but actually a much better instrument is the IUD removal forceps. There is one in particular that's spelled, it's a French name, Mathieu, M-A-T-H-I-E-U, IUD removal forceps. It's a small alligator forceps that is so small, it's very easy to sneak it up both into the endocervical canal as well as into the uterus in order to grab either the body of the IUD or the string. And I think anybody who who practices contraception should have one of these alligator IUD removal forceps. And in your experience, have you ever seen an IUD embedded in the uterus preventing removal? There have been IUDs that are either embedded or are configured in such a way in the uterus that they're difficult to remove. And occasionally, those patients we take to surgery for an operative hysteroscopy where we place an endoscope into the uterus in order to facilitate the removal. So can you discuss placement of IUDs after delivery? What is your expulsion rate? And do patients get frustrated if they pay for an IUD and then it comes out? What's your experience with that? We do quite a bit of immediate postpartum IUD placement in our hospital. We're fortunate to live in a state where Medicaid covers immediate postpartum IUD insertion as well as implant placement prior to hospital discharge after a delivery. So we've developed a transcesarean technique where we place the IUD right after the baby and the placenta have been removed after a C-section and a ring forceps technique for placing the IUD in the uterus right after a vaginal delivery. The expulsion rate is variable. 
in the literature, the expulsion rate varies from about 10% to about 30%. So it's very difficult with the existing data to know exactly where that expulsion rate is. It also appears to decline with experience. So the more experience a provider has, the lower the expulsion rate likely is with postpartum IUD insertion. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Espy, for being with us today and for sharing with us your thoughts on this important topic. Oh, no problem at all. Thank you for doing it. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi, and you've been listening to ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast. Thank you for listening.